Those old-timers took their gunplay seriously, which was natural under the conditions in which they lived. Shooting to them was considerably more than aiming at a mark and pulling a trigger. Models of weapons, methods of wearing them, means of getting them into action and operating them, all to the one end of combining high speed with absolute accuracy, contributed to the frontiersman's shooting skill. The sought-after degree of proficiency was that which could turn the most effective account the split second between life and death. Hours upon hours of practice and wide experience and actualities supported their arguments over style. The most important lesson I learned from those proficient gunfighters was the winner of a gunplay usually was the man who took his time. The second was that, if I hoped to live long on the frontier, I would shun flashy trick shooting, grandstand play, as I would poison. Later, as a peace officer, I was to fight some desperate battles against notorious gunmen of the Old West, and wonder has been expressed that I came through them all unscathed. Certain outlaws and their friends have said that I wore a steel vest under my shirt. There have been times when I'd have welcomed such a garment, but I never saw one in my life outside of a museum, and I very much doubt that any other frontiersman has either. Luck was with me in my gunfights, of course. So were the lessons learned in Market Square during the summer of 71. Jack Gallagher's advice summed up what others had to say. To wear weapons in the handiest position. In my case, as far as pistols were concerned, in open holsters. One on each hip if I was carrying two. Hung rather low as my arms were long. And with the muzzles a little forward on my thighs. Some men wore their guns belted high on the waist. A few butts forward army style for a cross draw. Others carried one gun directly in front of the stomach, either inside or outside the waistband, and another gun and a holster slung below the left armpit. Still others wore two of these shoulder holsters. Style was a matter of individual preference. When mounted on a horse and armed to the teeth, as the saying goes, a man's rifle was slung in a boot just ahead of his right stirrup. His shotgun carried on the left by a throng looped over the saddle horn. With the adoption of breech-loading weapons, a rider equipped with two pistols, rifle, and a shotgun customarily had one of the belts to which his pistol holsters were attached filled with pistol ammunition, the other with rifle cartridges, while a heavier, wider belt filled with shotgun shells was looped around the saddle horn underneath the throng which held that weapon. He was a riding arsenal, but there might well be times that he would need the munitions. Bowie knives were worn largely for utility's sake in a belt sheath back of the hip. When I came on the scene, their popularity for purposes of offense was on the wane. Although I have seen old-timers who carried them slung about their necks and who preferred them above all other weapons in the settlement of purely personal quarrels. When I say that I learned to take my time in a gunfight, I do not wish to be misunderstood. For the time to be taken was only that split fraction of a second that means the difference between deadly accuracy with a six-gun and a miss. It is hard to make this clear to a man who has never been in a gunfight. Perhaps I can best describe such time taken as going into action with the greatest speed of which a man's muscles are capable, but mentally unflustered by an urge to hurry or the need for complicated nervous and muscular actions which trick shooting involves. Mentally deliberate but muscularly faster than thought is what I mean. In all my life as a frontier police officer, I did not know a really proficient gunfighter who had anything but contempt for the gun fanner, or the man who literally shot from the hip. 
In latter years, I read a great deal about this type of gunplay, supposedly employed by men noted for skill with a 45. From personal experience in numerous six-gun battles which I witnessed, I can only support the opinion advanced by the men who gave me my most valuable instruction in fast and accurate shooting, which was that the gun fanner and hip shooter took small chance to live against a man who, as old Jack Gallagher always put it, took his time and pulled the trigger once. Cocking and firing mechanisms on new revolvers were almost invariably altered by their purchasers in the interest of smoother, effortless handling, usually by filing the dog which controlled the hammer, some going so far as to remove triggers entirely or lash them against the guard, in which cases the guns were fired by thumbing the hammer. This is not to be confused with fanning, in which the triggerless gun is held in one hand while the other was brushed rapidly against the hammer to cock the gun and firing it by the weight of the hammer itself. A skillful gun fanner could fire five shots from a 45 so rapidly that the individual reports were indistinguishable, but what could happen to him in a gunfight was pretty close to murder. I saw Jack Gallagher's theory borne out so many times in deadly operation that I was never tempted to forsake the principles of gunfighting as I had them from him and his associates. There was no man in the Kansas City group who was Wild Bill's equal with a six-gun. Bill's correct name, by the way, was James B. Hickok. Legend and the imaginations of certain people have exaggerated the number of men he killed in gunfights and have misrepresented the manner in which he did his killing. At that, they could not very well overdo his skill with pistols. Hickok knew all the fancy tricks and was as good as the best at that sort of gunplay. But when he had serious business at hand, a man to get, the acid test of markmanship, I doubt if he employed him. At least he told me that he did not. I have seen him in action and I never saw him fan a gun, shoot from the hip, or try to fire two pistols simultaneously. Neither have I ever heard a reliable old-timer tell of any trick shooting employed by Hickok when fast straight shooting meant life or death. The two-gun business is another matter that can stand some truth before the last of the old-time gunfighters has gone on. They wore two guns, most of the six-gun toters did, and when the time came for action, went after them with both hands. But they didn't shoot them that way. Primarily, two guns made the threat of some in reverse. They were useful as a display of force when a lone man stacked up against a crowd. Some men could shoot equally well with either hand, and in gunplay might alternate their fire. Others exhausted the loads from the gun on the right, or the left, as the case might be, then shifted the reverse weapon to the natural shooting hand if that was necessary and possible. Such a move, the border shift, could be made faster than the eye could follow a top-notch gun thrower. But if the man was as good as that, the shift would seldom be required. Whenever you see a picture of some two-gun man in action with both weapons held closely against his hips and both spit and smoke together, you can put it down that you were looking at the picture of a fool or a fake. I remember quite a few of these so-called two-gun men who tried to operate everything at once, but like the fanners, they didn't last long in proficient company. In the days of which I am talking, among men whom I have in mind, when a man went for his guns, he did so with a single serious purpose. There was no such thing as a bluff. When a gunfighter reached for his 45, every faculty he owned was keyed to shooting as speedily and as accurately as possible, to making his first shot the last of the fight. He just had to think of his gun solely as something with which to kill another before he himself could be killed. The possibility of intimidating an antagonist was remote. 
although the drop was thoroughly respected, and few men in the West would draw against it. I have seen men so fast and so sure of themselves that they did go after their guns, while men who intended to kill them had them covered, and what is more went out in the play. They were rare. It is safe to say, for all general purposes, that anything in gunfighting that smacked of show-off or bluff was left to braggarts who were ignorant or careless of their lives. I might add that I never knew a man who amounted to anything to notch his gun with credits, as they were called, for men he had killed. Outlaws, gunmen of the wild crew who killed for the sake of brag, followed this custom. I have worked with most of the noted peace officers, Hickok, Billy Tillman, Pat Sugar, Bat Masterson, Charlie Bassett, and others of like caliber. Have handled their weapons many times, but never knew one of them to carry a notched gun. There are two other points about the old-time method of using six guns most effectively that do not seem to be generally known. One is that the gun was not cocked with the ball of the thumb. As the gun was jerked into action, the old-timer closed the whole joint of his thumb over the hammer, and the gun was cocked in that fashion. The soft flesh of the thumb ball might slip if a man's hands were moist, and a slip was not to be chanced if humanly avoidable. This thumb joint method was employed whether or not a man used the trigger for firing. On the second point, I have often been asked why five shots without reloading were all a top-notch gunfighter fired when his guns were chambered for six cartridges. The answer is merely safety. To ensure against accidental discharge of the gun while in the holster, due to hair trigger adjustment, the hammer rested upon an empty chamber. As widely as this was known in practice, the number of cartridges a man carried in a six-gun may be taken as an indication of a man's rank with the gunfighters of the old school. Practiced gun-wielders had too much respect for their weapons to take unnecessary chances with them. It was only with tyros and would-bees that you heard of accidental discharges or didn't know it was loaded injuries in the country where carrying a colt was a man's prerogative. End of quote, and there you have it. Sage advice from the legend himself, Wyatt Earp. Maybe. Look, I'm no gunfighter, but much of what he said does make a lot of sense, right? Get to know your weapons, practice, learn how to keep your nerves in check, take your time, but not too much time, and leave the fancy tricks and notches for the wannabes. Unfortunately, it might all just be a load of BS. Hear me out. The passage I just shared comes directly from Stuart Lake's biography titled Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal. While Stuart Lake did know Wyatt, and he did consult with him for the book, how much Earp truly contributed, and how much of that was included in the final product is unknown. By the time Frontier Marshal was published, Wyatt was dead. And despite the book being a bestseller, it is considered by historians to be mostly a work of fiction. Not only can much of its information not be verified, but the author, Stuart Lake, even admitted to flat out making a lot of it up. While corresponding with fellow biographer Burton Rasco, Lake stated that Wyatt was inarticulate, not very intelligent, and that his speech was, at best, monosyllabic. According to Lake, he felt, quote, journalistically justified in inventing the Earp manuscript, end quote. And yeah, that likely includes this lesson on gunfighting that I shared just a few minutes ago. Apparently, Lake felt like employing direct quotations to things that Wyatt never actually said would make the book seem more authentic. Quote, I've often wondered if I did not overdo in this respect. End quote. So you tell me, did Wyatt Earp really say all that cool stuff about gunfighting? 
or did it all originate from the imaginative musings of an author by the name of Stuart Lake? I'll let you decide. Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com or leave a comment down below. Now, like I said, Frontier Marshall was an instant success. And shortly after publication, Hollywood came a-calling. Just eight years later, Randolph Scott would star as Wyatt Earp in the movie adaptation, followed by Bob Ford's My Darling Clementine. And, well, we've been making movies about Wyatt Earp ever since. Fact of the matter is, there's a damn good chance that without all the tall tales of Stuart Lake, Wyatt Earp would have simply remained a footnote in Old West history. So made-up stories or not, I think we all owe a big thank you to Mr. Lake, if for no other reason than just for helping to keep us entertained over the years. And speaking of thank yous, this is the last episode of the Wild West Extravaganza for the year of our Lord 2023. And man, oh man, what a year it's been. With your help, I've managed to release 45 episodes in total. That's original content, not including a few re-releases and promo swaps. Almost twice as many as last year. We've covered everything from Wyatt Earp and his time in Hollywood, his alleged advice on gunfighting today. We took a look at the mountain man Jim Bridger, did an entire series on Billy the Kid, as well as Pat Garrett. We also covered Billy's pals, guys like Doc Scarlock and Jose Chavez y Chavez. And we looked at the various claims of the kid's death being faked. We discussed Al Swearingen in the Jim Saloon, a deadly bushwhacker by the name of Jim Crow Childs, the gunfight at Jenkins Saloon, a notorious outlaw by the name of Cherokee Bill, the various adventures of frontiersman William T. Hamilton, Arizona Ranger Ed Scarborough, John Selman Sr., the man who killed John Wesley Harden, the shootout of Devil's Canyon, Johnny Ringo, the Battle of Antelope Hills, the Great Bass Reeves, Harry Tracy, Soapy Smith, Wooden Leg, and just last week, Lieutenant Whipple and the Blood Meridian Christmas Miracle. Download numbers for the podcast have tripled, finally hit that magical 1 million mark a couple of months ago. We gained over 22,000 additional subscribers on YouTube with a whopping 3.4 million views in just the last 365 days. Donated several hundred dollars to charity. I quit my job and made this show a full-time gig. And I couldn't have done any of this without you. So from the very bottom of my heart, thank you. Now, I haven't really talked much about me making a go at this as a career. But without boring you too much, without the sausages made, it ain't easy. Matter of fact, it is damn near impossible. Especially as an independent podcaster without the backing of a huge network. But I always felt like if I could get 1,000 people to listen, then why not 2,000? And if I could get 2,000, why not 5 or 10 or 20,000? You know, there's damn near 8 billion people in this world. All I need is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1% of the Earth's population to dig what I'm saying for this to be a success. The only thing I was ever lacking was time. Between driving a forklift all night and taking care of my daughter every morning, I was only able to devote a few hours to the show here and there, mostly on the weekends. I thought maybe if I could just dive in head first, really commit myself to focusing on the Wild West extravaganza as if my life depended on it, I could start to see some results. So I quit my job. Definitely would not recommend this tactic, by the way. There was many a night where I'd wake up in a cold sweat panicking because I was unemployed and cursing myself for being a fool and chasing after dreams like a damn child. But I snapped out of it, for the most part, and aside from listening to Lose Yourself by Eminem about a thousand times on repeat, I got busy. And when I got busy, I started to see some results. I kept grinding away, and sure enough, the show continued to grow. You know what's that saying? The harder you work, the luckier you get. 
I'm not going to lie, though. It is still pretty scary. I'm not exactly over here rolling around in $100 bills. I promise you the phrase starving artist most definitely applies to podcasting. And nothing's guaranteed. A lot of my income relies on advertising, and that can be very unpredictable. But a lot of it also comes directly from you, either through Into History or Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee, even the paid subscribers with the newsletter. I mentioned earlier that the Wild West extravaganza is fully independent. That means I don't exactly have an advertising budget to help spread the word. What growth I've seen has been almost completely organic, and much of that organic growth comes from you sharing this show with others. This is just my long-witted way of saying thank you, not just for telling people about the show and allowing me to pay the bills, but also in helping to keep the Old West alive. I truly believe this is the most fascinating era of history, and I am forever grateful that I've been able to contribute to it. I just hope my contribution continues to be worthy of your attention. This could all fall apart tomorrow. Who knows? My ass may very well be back on a forklift or in a machine shop by Easter. But for now, today, I am very much living the dream. I'm doing what I love, keeping the lights on in the process, and for that, I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as far as I'm concerned, things are just getting started. I got a lot of new stuff in the works for 2024. I want to finally get around to writing a book. Hopefully have that ready for you this time next year. I'd like to get some type of event organized. A live show of some sort, maybe meet some listeners in person. If you mostly consume this show on YouTube, I am working on getting actual videos produced, not just audio with a static image. That's more than likely going to be a costly endeavor, so don't look for it tomorrow, but it is in the works. I got an interview coming up with a legit actor, guy starring in a new documentary I think you'll like, so that'll be ready probably within the next couple of weeks or so. And we got a lot more of the Wild West to cover. Just to give you an idea of what I'm actively working on right now, I've mentioned this before, but we will have an entire series on the so-called Sioux Wars, starting from the Dakota War all the way up to Wounded Knee. And don't hold me to this, but I'm relatively confident we'll be kicking off the new year with a series on John Wesley Harden. I'm also currently researching and writing the Glanton Gang episode, a little more Blood Meridian action. I'm almost done with the Claude Dallas episode, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm definitely planning on covering Jesse James next year. We still got Geronimo and the Apache, Kit Carson, Butch Cassidy, Tom Horn, Deacon Jim Miller, Bat Masterson, Black Jack Ketchum, a full biography on Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, Juana Parker, and those are just some of the big names. The list of future topics is still a mile long, and it gets longer every week, thanks in part to you sending in so many great suggestions. So yeah, the future of the show's looking good, man. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to see what happens next. And who knows, maybe we can get John Fusco to finally cast me in Young Guns 3. Come on, John. All right, till next time, once again, thank you. Don't get into too much trouble over New Year's. And please, don't fan your gun, okay? I hear it can cause blindness. Adios. Adios.